We are in 1 Corinthians, in the letter to, wait, what book are we in? No, I'm just kidding. We're in uh, the letter to the Corinthians. We're in the first letter to the Corinthians, at least the first one that we have recorded in the scriptures from Paul. And this is our third installment of that letter to uh, the Corinthians, that uh, message. So we're going to be in verse 10 of chapter 1 together. And uh, we're going to stand together in honor of God's word as I read it. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brother, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Apollo. I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no, no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. I know that some of you are not sports fans, so bear with me for a second here. College and professional sports have historically been very different from one another, particularly baseball and basketball. And here's the reason, is that there's been this sense that in college sports, there's still a real love for the game, that it's a team sport, that coaching matters, fundamentals matters. What's the fundamental difference, though, between college and professional sports. What's the difference? Money, money, right. And so once the money comes into play, it changes the game. And why does it change the game? Because this is a business now. And those who are playing basketball are playing to get paid. This is a business. And there's contracts that are involved. And they are graded based on their personal performance. And so their market value in the sport is based on how well they perform personally, and therefore they become more concerned about their personal statistics and their personal performance than they have motivation to get their team to win. And so it changes the nature of the game. Well, actually college sports is drastically changing now as well because the name of the game there is to get yourself marketable so you can become a pro. And so it changes college sports as well. But historically that difference has been that, uh, you know, College sports, it's still for the pride of your team. It's for the love of the game. Coaching and fundamentals still matter. That makes everything so much more exciting and fun to watch. That's the idea. Well, this, the only reason I bring that up is because it's a very, very similar circumstance to where Corinth finds themselves as a church. Corinth, you know, they were brought into the family of God. They were brought into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness. They're on God's team, so to speak. And it used to be about the love of the game, the love of the Father. Coaching really still mattered. There was a team sport and all of that. But something's changed. And they've become much more individually focused in their faith. And for some reason, they're trying to figure out which one of them is a better Christian. 
which one of them has a better brand of Christianity? And it looks a whole lot more like the professional sports than the college sports. You know, I used to have uh, this experience periodically at Bible college where I'd be walking to my dorm and I'd pass the lounge on my floor and there'd be a couple guys who were hanging out in the lounge debating theology. And it would be funny because what you'd think they were debating was about like, you know, their girlfriends or something. I mean, it got so heated that it was like, you would think that this was like, you know, they, they, they were challenging each other's mothers and girlfriends or something, you know, and because they, these guys would be just furious with each other and they'd be sitting there yelling at each other. And, you know, you know the, I don't know if you know the story about St. Nick, you know, and not, not St. Nick, you know, the, the legend, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, that we have today of, of Santa, but the, the, the deep roots, St. Nick, St. Nick originally, you know, he was at a council with a bunch of other saints and they were trying to sort out the scripture and define theology. St. Nick got so angry at one point that he jumped up and cold cocked another guy and dropped him flat. He got booted off the council, you know, and rightfully so. Shouldn't he be booted off the council for dropping a guy and knocking out his teeth over theology? I mean, at what point do we get to the place where nuancing the theology becomes more important than revealing the character of God in our life? How do we get to that point? Well, again, this is where Corinth was. They were at a place where they were more interested in focusing on, on this, these uh, they, were, they were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. You've heard that before, right? They were getting hung up on the things that weren't nearly as important and instead were focusing on the things that they, they shouldn't have been and were missing the main point. Permit me one more analogy here about where Corinth was. There's a family, the Smiths, that live in Connecticut, okay? And the father, John, uh, he uh, grew up in a family where they loved baseball and where they loved family and they loved hanging out and all of that. And so he has two sons. John has two sons. And it's, it's Jimmy and Joey, okay? And he gets them, Jimmy and Joey Smith, or the son of John Smith. You got that? That's all very important. And so they, they get into baseball. He raises their twins and he raises the boys to play ball together. And he always thought it'd be fun to get them playing baseball together because it'll be a fun family activity. We'll do it together. And so they would throw ball outside and they learn to play t-ball together and all of that. Well, as they grew in their ability to play baseball, they also grew as baseball fans. One of them became a Boston Red Sox fan. The other one became a New York Yankees fan. Okay, well, this is a problem. You know, they live in Connecticut, and they're split between the two. Well, at first, it was kind of a fun rivalry at home, but something happened, and over time, there was this tension that developed, and they became such passionate fans about their teams that you start to see their identities are formed around their teams, and next thing you know, they couldn't sit around the dinner table and have a decent time as a family without these two breaking out into arguments about whose team is better. Now, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that they should both be Phillies fans. <laughs> the problem is this. The problem is that they were fans more than they cared about playing baseball anymore. And they cared about baseball more than they cared about the family anymore. And they were trying to prove their own identity and see their differences from each other more than they were interested in seeing what they had in common. Because they had an insecurity problem were trying to prove themselves against their brother rather than accepting the fact that they're in this family together. Dad cares about them and wants them to be united in this thing. And instead, they have to prove 
which one of them is better by what? The fan of which team they're, you know, it's, it's a ridiculous thought. And yet, this is exactly where Corinth found themselves. How? Because Corinth, again, the church of Corinth had been brought into the kingdom of God, and it was a wonderful transition, and they were called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and it was this great moment where we studied a couple weeks ago about how we watched the, the great transition and transformation of the church in Corinth, and we just watched God do the miraculous. But what happens now? See, what happens is, is as they, as they uh, kind of mature, we'll say, in their faith, as time goes on, they end up finding different stripes and different brands within the Christian faith. And what they rally around is different leaders. Okay, and so there's these three slash four leaders. The first one is Peter. Okay, so who is Peter? He's not the first one listed in Scripture, but he's the first one we're going to deal with. Uh, who, yeah, th- his name was Cephas in the, in the passage here, which is Peter. Why would they follow Peter? We don't know that they had a whole lot of exposure to Peter. But the reason they'd follow Peter is because, I mean, he is the man, the myth, the legend, right? I mean, he's the Pentecost speaker. He's the one where the fire dropped from heaven and 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. I mean, we all know that Christ is the foundation of the church. But to them, as far as a human leader, it's Peter. He's the foundation of the church. You know, he's the rock upon which Christ built the church. This is Peter, you know. And so there's a whole camp of people who are like, we follow Peter. You know, so whatever Peter says is kind of gold to us, you know, and then there's Paul. And why would people follow Paul? Well, Paul was the founder of their church. He was the church planter who came to them and there were signs and there were wonders and they saw the whole transition happen and Paul broke into their town and he established a church there. He was the founding pastor of their church, you know, but then there was this other guy and this is where it really started to get tricky. There's this guy, Apollos. And Apollos, we're told in Acts, was an eloquent speaker, very gifted communicator, and he had deep wisdom. And apparently he came after Paul, and while Paul planted the church, he came and Paul says that Apollos waters the seed. What he means is, is that while they came to Christ through the ministry of Paul, Paul helps them grow de- or Apollos helps them grow deeper in their faith. So he's revealing depths of things in the scriptures that they hadn't seen before. And he's doing it with eloquent speech. And he's doing this profound job of teaching them the scriptures. And so this is where it all starts, okay? There's these people who, they came to Christ through the ministry of Paul. They know about the ministry of Peter. But when this guy, Apollo, shows up, they're like, wow, that's some really good teaching. I never thought of it that way. And it starts, and and they're, they're, they're growing, and things are happening, and it's good. And yet, instead of them pursuing God and honoring God and thanking God for Peter, who was the foundation of the church in some ways, And Paul, who birthed this church, and now Apollos, who's watering the seed, instead what they do is say, man, Apollos is way better than Paul. Like, he speaks way better than Paul does. I don't want to listen to Paul anymore. I don't care what Paul has to say anymore. I want to listen to Apollos, you know? And then there was others who were saying, you guys are into Apollos and Paul and everything, but we're into Peter, you know, because he was the foundation of it all. And then there was this one other camp that's mentioned, and that's the Jesus camp, okay? And this is the group of people who said, You all are dependent on the wrong things, okay? We're in the Christ camp. And so you guys might be fans of Apollos and fans of Peter and and fans of Paul, but we're fans of Jesus. So there's the trump card for you. You guys are all wrong. We're right. 
worship us, you know? This is kind of the way, the way it worked out. And it's funny because, of course, they're right on one level, right? We should all be about Christ, and yet they're no different than the rest of them. Sometimes having the right theology leads to worse problems because we get more arrogant, you know, about, well, we got it right. You guys are dropping these human names, but we just dropped the God name on you, so we're the ones who are something special, and they're taking their identity in who they're a fan of, and they're seeing themselves by what's different about their theologies and what's different about their fan clubs rather than what unites them, which is the cross of Christ, which is his redemption, which is the fact that they're all sinners in need of a savior who have been redeemed by Christ and that they shouldn't be just fans of Christ and fans of all these other peoples. They should be followers of God. But they're kind of like these two twin brothers they're not playing ball, team ball anymore. They, don't, they barely care about playing baseball. They care about who they're fans of. They don't care about being on the same team with each other. They care about which one of their camps is the special camp, you know, and that's how they form their identity. That doesn't sound familiar on any level, does it? To, you know, the church of modern day America or anything. You know, we, we obviously have experienced this kind of division across the Western church for years. You know, every stripe and brand of, of Christianity, you know, and, and, and rallying ourselves around our own unique stripe of Christianity rather than finding ourselves in submission to Christ and what unifies us together. It's, it's a historic problem that goes all the way back to the church of Corinth in the first century. Now, Paul has his work cut out for him in dealing with this for a couple reasons. First of all, because they have absolutely no idea that this is an issue. They have no idea this is a problem. Most of them. See, you remember why Paul wrote the letter, the first letter to the church in Corinth? Do you remember what we said from the, from the first series? There was a reason why he wrote this. It was in response to something. Anybody remember? Okay, I'll chalk it up that you guys were asleep that week. And what happened was he, he wrote a letter, and they wrote a letter to him asking him a series of questions. And they asked him very legitimate questions. They wanted to know about marriage, and they wanted to know about sexuality. They wanted to know about litigation. They wanted to know about spiritual gifts. They wanted to know about meat sacrificed to idols and whether they could eat it. They had all these specific questions about the details of how the faith worked itself out because they were sitting there trying to do the best they could to be the best possible Christian they could be, and they're asking him to nuance the details of, of the Christian faith. And so he will get to responding to those things, but he won't get to it until chapter 5. And the reason is, is because he has heard reports about something else that's going on in the church that didn't come in the letter. Okay, and that's where you see back here in verse 11. So look in verse 11, I believe it is. Starts off, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So they're sitting there and they're bickering right? And they're having quarrels. But they didn't write that in the letter. Isn't it funny how when we look for help, most of the time, very often, we kind of are looking for fixes on the surface rather than asking God to peer deep into what's wrong with us. Isn't that how it works? I mean, this is how it works in counseling all the time. People come in and say, you know, how do we get our budget fixed? Well, let me hear about your walk with Jesus first. You know, or, or I can, you know, I might be having a little bit of relational tension with my kid, but there might be some gaping wounds that haven't been taken care of deep in someone's heart that are really feeding the problem. And oftentimes when we're looking for God to fix something in our life, there's deeper issues that we are completely unaware of and God needs to do some surgery 
and dig down a little bit deeper into our lives. And this is what's going on with Paul. You see, they want to know the details about how do we do this? How do we do that? And again, they're majoring on the minors. They're worried about all these things out here. But then Paul caught wind of the fact that they're disunified and they're fighting with each other. And he's like, stop the press, you know? All this other stuff is irrelevant because chances are the reason you're trying to figure out all the details of these things is still to kind of like form your own identity and justify yourselves with your behaviors when underneath of it, the core is you still don't even understand how to get along with each other, which is a very core tenet of the church, you know, that we are one in Christ. This was the great prayer in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And, and, and you're failing open on this level and yet you're wanting to have all these other questions answered. So what does Paul do? What any of us have to do when one of our friends or one of our kids or our spouse or whoever we're dealing with has an issue and they're asking about it, but we understand that underneath of it, there's a much deeper issue that we have to get at. You can't just go right after that thing and pound it. You kind of have to build your case, you know, and you have to ease into that. And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. And so the first two uh, messages that we've had so far, dealing with the pra two paragraphs prior to this one, are, are you see Paul beginning to build a case. And so what happens is, first of all, in that, in that first message that we had, you remember what he was doing? He was telling them, you live in this crazy world of Corinth. But you are called. Remember what they were called to? We'll read it here in verse 2. It says, To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying to them? You guys are called to be set apart. You're called to be different than this world. So this is their mission. What's their mission? Their mission is to be different than the world around them. And what's this world? It's not only that there's moral failure all over the place, it's also the, the world of the wisdom of the Greeks, of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all of the human-dependent wisdom that they talked about and the immorality. And so there's the mindsets that have to change and there's the morality that has to change. And he's saying, you are called to be set apart, to be different. That's their mission. But then... We asked the question last week, are they capable of being holy and being set apart? Which is a really tricky question. And you remember last week, I was so excited. I, I, I think it was in second service that I was really, really excited because there was someone who was older said, yes, we can. And then there was, or no, there was a, a little, uh, there was a little uh, girl, uh, Selena uh, Yeager, who said, uh, Selena Rosado said to us, she said, uh, yes, absolutely, you can you can, uh, you know, be holy and do what God calls you to do. But then we had someone who was older, uh, and I don't remember who it was, who said, no, we can't really do what God has called us to do. I, I think it was, I, I forget who it was. But anyway, we were in the, and the tension in that answer was such a beautiful tension because we realized that on one level, God has called us to do things, and we're incapable of actually achieving those things. But then his grace is that he puts Christ within us. And when we get to the end of ourselves is the place where we can begin to actually live the calling that he's called us to. And so last week we talked about digging deep, but not just into ourselves, into Christ, because the power of Christ that resides within us makes us capable of doing the impossible. And so you see what's happening is Paul's building a case. First, your mission is to be set apart. 
Secondly, you can't do this on your own. You need Christ, and I thank God for his grace that's within you, that allows you, that will keep you strong to the end. And he says, and you lack no spiritual gift. And remember, that you was not a singular you. It was a corporate you, that among all of you, you lack no spiritual gift. So if you're dependent on Christ and interrelated with one another, you have what it takes by God to fulfill what he's called you to, which is to be holy and set apart. Now, this week, what Paul does is he takes it, he builds on that logic and takes it to the next step. And he says this, listen, it's not only that you need to be dependent on God in order to fulfill your calling, it's also that you can't primarily depend on the human leaders. It's not just that you can't be self-dependent on your own strength, but when God brings one of these gifts to you, specifically one of these limelight gifts, one of these teaching gifts, one of these people who look like heroes to you, if you go and place your identity and place your sense of significance in which one of those you follow, and if you place your, your, uh, your sense of, the, uh, of power and whether or not this thing can be accomplished based on the, you know, one of these leaders, you're going to find it f- failing open. Because they're human as well. And this is where Paul's building his case and showing them that their mind is focused on the wrong things. And they're looking to the wrong source of power. And because of that, what's happening? Now it opened the door for division in the church. Because since they're looking for the wrong thing, they're not uniting around Christ. They're being divided by their different preferences. Now in in the Church of America, of course, we, we have some of this. There's still some hero worship at times of different Christian leaders. You know, you could listen to a podcast of this guy or this guy on the radio, or you could go to this church because there's this leader, or even within a church, you could have your favorite leader and, and go to those different people. But we're a lot less religious at this point. And so our heroes tend to not be uh, religious people. We tend to find our differences in all sorts of other things, you know? We tend to find it in who has the better job and who has the nicer car and who has all of those things. We find our differences in church with this church has that program and this church does this really well and I feel good at this church. Or, you know, and there's all these different things that still we can become fans of things. And, and be disunified instead of being followers of Christ and finding unity. So Paul begins to build his case, trying to show them underneath of it all that this is really built on a false theology that they have. But there's a second reason why this communication from Paul is so difficult. Why else is it going to be difficult for Paul to address their problem with human leadership? Why? Why would that be a difficult thing for Paul to address? He's one of them, you know? For, for probably three quarters of the people, they don't trust Paul at this point because they're Apollos fans and they're Peter fans and they're Christ fans. And they can forget Paul, you know? He's the, the boring guy who planted this church who we don't want anything to do with anymore. We're past that. We got Apollos now, you know? They don't really care about Paul. So Paul's going to come and try to show them this stuff, but they're not trying to listen to Paul right now. Well, that puts them in a tough spot. You know, and the other thing is, is in order for him to actually communicate to this to them, he has to, he has to step up into his authority and in some ways prove his authority to say this to him. But by doing that, he's establishing human authority again, and it might be counterproductive to what he's trying to accomplish, which is to get them to stop looking at human authority and to begin looking at Christ. Doesn't that put him in a little bit of a pickle? You know, that's a, that's a tough spot for, for Paul. Now there's a couple things here. I mean, first of all, Paul could be 
seriously offended over the fact that he planted this church, he sacrificed his life, he did all this work, and now the people are like, ah, we don't have time for you, we want Apollos, you know? And it'd be easy for him to be offended. And the thing is, is you know that Peter and Apollos and Paul, they're not interested in the church being disunified. They're not interested in having their own fan clubs. They're trying to lead people to Christ, but there's this whole deeper desire in people to disunify and to identify themselves within the certain camp. It's a natural human thing. So Paul could be offended by this, but for Paul, this isn't an ego trip, you know, and he wants to keep his eye on the prize, which is that he wants these people to draw closer to Christ. So he's got to stuff down personal pain, you know, and bring that to Christ and let it go. And any of us who serve in any kind of leadership capacity at all, whether you're a parent, whether you have a friend who you're trying to reestablish a relationship with, whether you've been in ministry, whether you're in the, in, the, in the workplace and you're a manager or whatever it is, you recognize that there are times that if you want to get something accomplished, you better learn to swallow your pride, you know? You have to learn to swallow your pride because if you're going to get hung up on the place where people offended you, you're not going to be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And this is where Paul, I, this is a typical, let me tell you a typical situation, a marriage situation that comes into to my office. A situation comes up at home. Dad deals with it a certain way, okay, because this is the way he thinks it should go. Mom, she kind of disagreed with it and she didn't like it. And so she's a little bent over the way he dealt with it. So now dad feels disrespected by mom. So now he's a little bit like, all right, fine, whatever, forget you. And he kind of turns his shoulder. Now she doesn't feel affection anymore, and she doesn't feel cared about anymore. So she feels insecure and unloved, and he feels disrespected, and both of them end up resentful. And they're at this very dangerous spot where when one isn't feeling loved and the other isn't feeling respected, and they're in a place of resentment, guess what? They still need to feel loved, and they still need to feel respected. And it becomes a very dangerous situation because they might begin to look for that in other places. And so the way that we go after fixing this problem is by, I, you know, I grab dad by the shoulder and I say, I know, you were absolutely right, 100%, you know? And, and she doesn't agree with you, and that's terrible. But man, you got to get over it, you know? And you got to let that go. And you got to start showing affection even though she doesn't agree with you. Because at this point, you're not, you, if you hold on to your line and try to prove your point, you're not going to save your marriage. This is a big deal much bigger than whether or not she believes you were right in this situation. Let it go, man, and love on her, you know? Go home and give her a back rub, you know? And tell her that you love her and you're sorry that there's a disagreement over this thing, but that no matter what, you love her and you're there for her, you know? And, and, you know, and then go to the other side and talk to mom about her end of it. But this is what Paul needs to do, okay? And Paul has to stuff it down, give it to God, and say, I'm gonna reach past just justifying myself and being like, are you kidding me? I planted this church. You were nothing without me. And he could have gone like that over the division, but he didn't. He wasn't trying to be prideful. He was trying to get them to Christ. And so how does he approach them? And this is where it's really important. His approach is very important. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, he could have been like, get in line, kids. You know, and instead he's like, I appeal to you brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about Christ. I'm one of the corporate you here. I am just like you, a sinner in need of grace. I'm not pulling rank on you, but I'm also asking you and begging you as my brothers and as my sisters, please don't let there be divisions among you. 
you know. And uh, wh- what's tricky in this situation, again, in, in our world, you know, we have a problem in American church called consumerism. You know, and you know about consumerism where we think that we're, we're the purchasing agents and everything is for us. And we tend to approach church this way, where we think church is for us, not for God. And there's been a whole mindset shift in the Western world where we've lost sight of the fact that we come to church to give to God rather than coming to church to receive And so consumerism is a flipped mindset. Now, if a good pastor who cares about his people is going to want to teach them that this isn't about what we receive, it's about what we give. But here's the problem. You go too hard after it, and there's a whole smorgasbord of churches that people can go to, right? And so there's a a gentle approach in the way that we bring people through the difficulties of their problems, and we wait until there's struggles, and then we, we find those struggles as windows into people's lives to help say, hey, the reason you're having this struggle might be because the focus of your life is on you instead of on God. And therefore, you're always going to be disappointed because things aren't going to work out great for you. Maybe the focus of your life needs to switch from you to God. And maybe your focus of church needs to switch from what it provides you to what it provides God, you know? And, and that, those become windows. And in the same way, Paul is dealing with this with authority with them. They can't have a good relationship with God if they're insubmissive to their, of the authorities that God put in their life. But if, these, but if Paul just pulls rank on them and starts laying the smack down, it's not going to work. He's going to lose them. And so he's gentle and he restores and he's appealing to them as brothers that they would not be disunified. So this is the struggle of Paul, but he finally gets to the place where he actually does make the appeal. And what is the appeal? Listen to this appeal. Verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Now, I want to stop. This word agree, you know what it means? Literally translated, that you would say the same thing. So it says that you would agree with one another. Basically, that you would say the same thing with one another. That you would say, and it even has, could be saying that you would say the same thing about one another. So that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And that word thought can also be uh, maybe more literally translated as opinion. That you would have the same mind and you would have the same opinion and you would be saying the same things. Wow. Well, doesn't that sound like a cult? I mean, like where you're not allowed to have like any diversion in the way you say things. That sounds kind of cultish to me where you're only allowed to say the same thing that they say. And you're only allowed to have the same opinion that that person has. Well, see, the thing is, is that's true if it does become cultish, if that becomes the whole culture of what we're about, you know, when it comes to what you wear and when it comes to what you think that you have to have the same. But he's not referring to everything about their lives that they have to agree on the same thing. What he's saying is, is all these different things that you have different opinions on, don't make them the big deal. All these things that you disagree about and that you talk about all these things you disagree, don't talk about the things you disagree about. Talk about the things you agree about. Don't worry about the places where you have differing opinions. Find the core where you have the same opinion. In other words, you guys are being divided over all sorts of stuff that is minor. And there's a huge thing that you have in common is that you're a bunch of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God and it's the power of God who lives within you to transform you. And here we are getting hung up on all this other stuff. Don't worry about that. Say the same things. Say this is about Jesus. You know, that's not a cult to say it's about Jesus. You know, that's the truth. Say that. Don't worry about saying all the other stuff. Say that. 
And, and whatever our opinions are about this little nuance of theology or this way we do ministry over here or what my worship style preference is or, you know, the kind of church I like to go to or whether I enjoy Sunday schools or small groups or, or whether I like the way this uh, preacher smells versus the way this one does or, you know, whatever it is. Who cares? Let it go. This is about Jesus, isn't it? This is about Jesus. So don't get hung up on all this other stuff. And what is it that's dividing us? And when we look back across the church, and we see division here, and we see division there. How often is that division based on Christ and the cross? Very rarely. And when it is, it was a good thing. This is where Jesus says, I've come to turn brother against brother, and father against child. The only place where he's looking for division is when it comes to the central core doctrine, the truth. Only one way, by Jesus. And we will split hairs on that one, you know? If there is another way for me to be redeemed other than Jesus, I'm going to split hairs on that one, and that's worth dividing over because this is the church of Christ, you know? And that one's worth dividing over. But beyond that, all the other divisions that we see, all the splinters all over the place in the church, what is that about? Honestly, what is that about? Is that about Christ? Is that really about Jesus and honoring him? That's like asking the kids, one who's the Yankees fan and one's the Boston fan, Is this really about family? Is this really about making dad proud of you or something? No, what dad wants is for us to enjoy baseball together, but we're hung up on whether we're Boston fans or New York fans. And in the same way, Paul's saying, honestly, do you think this is making God happy that you think Apollos is a little more right than Peter or something? This is crazy. We're missing the whole point. And so what does Paul say? What's his argument? It's awesome. I love it. Verse 13, he says this. In in three words, he just nails them. In three words, he lays, this, the whole thing sets up. Honestly, everything in this passage has set up so far for these three words. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Here's the deal. You remember last week what we said? When we are at the end of ourselves, we are just at the beginning of Christ. And we live in Christ and by Christ and Christ lives among us and it's all about Christ. We got into the kingdom of God by Christ and we will progress in the kingdom of God by Christ and we will be held firmly established to the end by Christ. It's all about Christ. And the more we learn to live in Christ, the more we see his will being worked out in our lives. But there's these divisions among you. So is Christ divided? Because my understanding is that Christ scattered himself, his spirit, among us. And if Christ isn't divided, but we are, then what does that say about us? That some parts of us are not in Christ. Because Christ is not divided. And if we are saying that we're the body of Christ, and if we're all saying we're depending on Christ, and yet we find ourselves in a place of division, then we're not in Christ, are we? Because Christ is not divided. And then Paul says, were you baptized into Paul's name? You know, no, you were baptized into into the name of Christ. And he's like, I wasn't the one who brings transformation into your life. I was called simply to preach the gospel. And listen to this. This is how he ends it right here. I was called simply to preach the gospel. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this one could be perceived as a shot across the bow with Apollos, but it's not. See, what he's saying is, I came to preach the gospel to you, but I'm not going to do it 
with these wise and persuasive words. Apollos came in and he had all sorts of wisdom and he spoke with great eloquence. He's like, but that is not my job. And I'm not going to do what Apollos does just to tickle your fancy. I'm not going to give you just what you want just because Apollos can do it. Do you think that Paul could speak about the things that Apollos did? Do you think Paul understood theology well enough to go to the places that Apollos did? It's so much more than that. Aquila and Priscilla, the people who Paul discipled, they are the ones who are discipling Apollos. When Apollos gets out of line, they put him in line. Paul's like Apollos' spiritual grandfather. He's that much more advanced in his theology. And yet these guys are into Apollos because they think he's more wise than Paul. And Paul, what he's saying is, is man, I could smoke Apollos. (laughs) But I'm not going to because I want you to see Jesus. And I don't want you to see Paul. I don't want you to get hung up because every time that we feed you what you want, you start looking to the wrong thing instead of looking to Jesus. And in the church, we have this major systemic problem that we think that the gospel should come to us in the forms that work for us, that worship music should happen in just a way that it makes it easy for me to praise God, that the teaching of the word has to come in such a way that it just, it speaks right to me. I don't have to do any work to submit to God, to worship God. I don't actually have to believe in the transformation and the power of the cross. I need things to be custom fit to me. I need a program that works just right for for my kids, or I need, you know, whatever it is that I need in the church. And at the core of it, Paul's saying, forget all of that. We're not going to build a church based on what works for each one of us. We're building a church on one thought, that Christ died on the cross, and by his grace we live. And so we better be grateful for what we have. And no matter who's preaching what, as long as we have Christ at the center, let's not split hairs. Let's choose to be together. Let's not be the church of this pastor or of that pastor or of this program or of that denomination or the one that has all the wealthy people in it or the one that has the successful people or the one that has diversity or doesn't have diversity or has this or has that. Like, Let's not worry about all that. Let's worry about the fact that we are sinners saved by grace and that's true of all of us. So we're in this together and we are have one job, which is to teach and help each other to get more rooted in the cross of Christ and dependent on him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.